Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Very shocks of wheat. One of the Erebus now approaches the shock which conceals my recumbent form and where the pale moonbeams are coquettishly ogling the nickel-plated portions of my wheel, making it conspicuously scutilent by their attentions. Hoping the Araba may be going to pass by, and that my presence may escape the driver's notice, I hesitate even yet to reveal myself, but the Araba stops, and I can observe the driver's frightened expression as he suddenly becomes aware of the presence of strange, supernatural objects. At that same moment, I rise up in my winding sheet-like covering. The man utters a wild yell, and abandoning the Araba, vanishes like a deer in the direction of his companions. It is an unenviable situation to find oneself in. If I boldly approach them, these people, not being able to ascertain my character in the moonlight, would be quite likely to discharge their firearms at me in their fright. If, on the contrary, I remain under cover, they might also try the experiment of a shot before venturing to approach the deserted buffaloes, who are complacently shooting the cud on the spot where their chicken-hearted driver took to his heels. Under the circumstances, I think it best to strike off toward the road, leaving them to draw their own conclusions as to whether I am Shaitan himself or merely a plain, inoffensive hobgoblin. But while gathering up my effects... One heroic individual ventures to approach partway and open up a shouting inquiry. My answers, though unintelligible to him in the main, satisfy him that I am at all events a human being. There are six of them, and in a few minutes after the ignominious flight of the driver, they are all gathered around me, as much interested and nonplussed at their appearance of myself and bicycle as a party of Nebraska homesteaders might be, had they, under similar circumstances, discovered a turbaned old Turk complacently enjoying a nargila. No sooner do their apprehensions concerning my probable warlike character and capacity become allayed than they get altogether too familiar and inquisitive about my packages, and I detect one venturesome kleptomaniac surreptitiously unfastening a strap when he fancies I am not noticing. Moreover, laboring under the impression that I don't understand a word they are saying, I observe they are commenting, in language smacking unmistakably of covetousness, as to the probable contents of my White House leather case. Some think it is sure to contain chokpara, much money, while others suggest that I am a postaya, courier, and that it contains letters. Under these alarming circumstances, there is only one way to manage these overgrown children— that is, to make them afraid of you forthwith. So, shoving the strap unfastener roughly away, 
I imperatively order the whole covetous crew to hide. Without a moment's hesitation, they betake themselves off to their work, it being an inborn trait of their character to mechanically obey an authoritative command. Following them to their other Arabus, I find they have brought quilts along, intending, after loading up, to sleep in the field until daylight. Selecting a good heavy quilt with as little ceremony as though it were my own property, I take it and the bicycle to another shock and curl myself up warm and comfortable. Once or twice the owner of the coverlet approaches quietly, just near enough to ascertain that I am not intending making off with his property, but there is not the slightest danger of being disturbed or molested in any way till morning. Thus, in this curious, roundabout manner, does fortune provide me with the wherewithal to pass a comparatively comfortable night. Rather arbitrary proceedings to take a quilt without asking permission, some might think, but the owner thinks nothing of the kind. It is quite customary for travellers of their own nation to help themselves in this way, and the villagers have come to regard it as quite a natural occurrence. At daylight I am again on the move, and sunrise finds me busy making an outline sketch of the ruins of an ancient castle that occupies, I should imagine, one of the most impregnable positions in all Asia Minor, a regular Gibraltar. It occupies the summit of a precipitous detached mountain peak, which is accessible only from one point, all the other sides presenting a sheer precipice of rock. It forms a conspicuous feature of the landscape for many miles around, and situated as it is amid a wilderness of rugged brush-covered heights, admirably suited for ambuscades. It was doubtless a very important position at one time. It probably belongs to the Byzantine period, and if the number of old graves scattered among the hills indicate anything, it has in its day been the theatre of stirring tragedy. An hour after leaving the frowning battlements of the grim old relic behind, I arrive at a cluster of four rock houses, which are apparently occupied by a sort of a patriarchal family consisting of a turbaned old Turk and his two generations of descendants. The old fellow is seated on a rock, smoking a cigarette and endeavoring to coax a little comfort from the slanting rays of the morning sun, and I straightway approach him and broach the all-important subject of refreshments. He turns out to be a fanatical old gentleman, one of those old-school Muslims who have neither eye nor ear for anything but the Mohammedan religion. I have irreverently interrupted him in his morning meditations, it seems, and he administers a rebuke in the form of a sidewise glance, such as a Pharisee might be expected to bestow on a cannibal islander venturing to approach him, and delivers himself of two deep-fetched sighs of Allah, Allah. Anybody would think from his actions that the sanctimonious old mannequin, five feet three, has made the pilgrimage to Mecca a dozen times, whereas he has evidently not even earned the privilege of wearing a green turban. He has neither been to Mecca himself during his whole unprofitable life, nor sent a substitute, and he now thinks of gaining a nice numerous harem and a walled-in garden with trees and fountains, cucumbers and carpooses, in the land of the Hara Fuj Keys, by cultivating the spirit of fanaticism at the eleventh hour. I feel too independent this morning to sacrifice any of the well-nigh invisible remnant of dignity remaining from the respectable quantity with which I started into Asia, for I still have a couple of the wheaten quites I brought from Yuzgat. So, leaving the ancient Muslim to his meditations, 
I push on over the hills, when, coming to a spring, I eat my frugal breakfast, soaking the unbiteable quoits in the water. After getting beyond this hilly region, I emerge upon a level plateau of considerable extent, across which very fair wheeling is found. But before noon the inevitable mountains present themselves again, and some of the acclivities are trundleable only by repeating the stair-climbing process of the Karasu Pass. Necessity forces me to seek dinner at a village where abject poverty beyond anything hitherto encountered seems to exist. A decently large fig-leaf, without anything else, would be eminently preferable to the tattered remnants hanging about these people, and among the smaller children, purus naturalis is the rule. It is also quite evident that few of them ever take a bath, as there is plenty of water about them. This doubtless comes of the pure contrariness of human nature in the absence of social obligations. Their religion teaches these people that they ought to bathe every day. Consequently, they never bathe at all. There is a small threshing floor handy, and, taking pity on their wretched condition, I hesitate not to drive dull care away from them for a few minutes, by giving them an exhibition. Not that there is any dull care among them, though, after all, for, in spite of desperate poverty, they know more contentment than the well-fed, respectably dressed mechanic of the Western world. It is, however, the contentment born of not realizing their own condition, the bliss that comes of ignorance. They search the entire village for eatables, but nothing is readily obtainable but bread. A few gaunt, angular fowls are scratching about, but they have a beruffled, disreputable appearance, as though their lives had been a continuous struggle against being caught and devoured. Moreover, I don't care to wait around three hours on purpose to pass judgment on these people's cooking. Eggs there are none. They are devoured, I fancy, almost before they are laid. Finally, while making the best of bread and water, which is hardly made more palatable by the appearance of the people watching me feed, a woman in an airy fairy costume that is little better than no costume at all, comes forward and contributes a small bowl of yaourt. But unfortunately this is old yaourt, yaourt that is in the sere and yellow stage of its usefulness as human food, and although these people doubtless consume it thus, I prefer to wait until something more acceptable and less odoriferous turns up. I miss the genial hospitality of the gentle cords today. Instead of heaping plates of pilau and bowls of wholesome new yaourt, fickle fortune brings me nothing but an exclusive diet of bread and water. My road this afternoon is a torturous donkey trail, intersecting ravines with well-nigh perpendicular sides and rocky ridges, covered with a stunted growth of cedar and scrub oak. The higher mountains round about are heavily timbered with pine and cedar. A large forest on a mountain slope is on fire, and I pass a camp of people who have been driven out of their permanent abode by the flames. Fortunately, they have saved everything except their naked houses and their grain. They can easily build new houses, and their neighbors will give